whom you stand and what you stand for. On the right, you see that phrase in Hebrew, da lifne mi ataomed, or here it's da lifne mi anachnu omed, know before whom we stand. It's a very famous phrase. In reading recently about the deterioration of values in our time, I came across an interesting article on a site called boardmember.com, which seeks to advise corporate board members. The article talked of how times of crisis expose our values. We are living in such times now. I imagine you will agree that this is a good time to check, to see what these times of crisis are revealing about what we really stand for. The beginning of the article leads us toward a consideration of today's Torah passage and leads us toward the issue of our values, what they should be and where they came from. In a phrase, we are going to be looking at what we stand for and who we stand before as servants of the master and subjects of the king. So let's look at who we stand before and what we stand for. Here is what the article says. You will see that what it says about companies also applies to people. Quote, what a company stands for in word and deed form the underpinnings of a crisis response and are on full display for all to judge. Every crisis manifests information that provides a window into the character of a company, end quote. And this may also be applied to each one of us. Every crisis provides a window into our own character and that of our nation. Consider the oft-repeated uh, United Airlines, uh, sorry, yes, United Airlines incident, which was about last spring or the spring before, where despite protests from fellow passengers, security personnel dragged the man kicking and screaming off his flight. His seat was paid for. He was neither unruly nor disruptive. He was just a typical everyday passenger. The circumstances underpinning United's resolve to have this man and three other passengers removed from the flight, even by force, revealed something about the company's values. From the company's perspective, it was a priority to get four passengers off the plane and give those seats to four crew members so that they could get to their destination to staff another plane or else United would lose money on a subsequent flight. Even the most artful and empathetic response couldn't mask what drove this crisis in the first place. That man was dragged off the plane 
because of company policy. All the friendly skies promotion in the world could not mask the company's hardened indifference. Customers were viewed as commodities. That kind of value proposition permeates every level of a company. With the greed is good culture overtaking the friendly skies, employees were just following policy. Crises surface important insights into a company, but how you manage the crisis and how you recover depends on how you respond and how you respond begins with your values. And what the article neglected to address was where our values come from in the first place. Scripture insists that values begin with what occupies the God space in our psyche. That source of ultimate values is actually your God. And your God concept is the ultimate exemplar and authority from which flow your highest values. What you stand for, your values come from who you stand before as servant. Do you stand before the company? Or do you stand before the Lord of heaven and earth? Do you stand before him as a master or as a subject before a king? Today's Torah passage addresses what we should stand for and also who it is before whom we stand. What kind of a God do we serve? And since the passage is in the Torah, it addresses especially the Jewish people, while it provides valid insights for all of us. In this sermon, I hope to share with you three thoughts, three insights. Here's the first one. The Jewish people are a people of covenant and oath, established by God himself to be his people with himself as our God. This relationship requires of us conformity to the way of life he prescribed to our ancestors. That's why we read today. Today you are standing, all of you, before Adonai, your God, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and your officers, all the men of Israel. This is interesting. Ten different categories of, uh, of people are mentioned here. Uh, ten, ten categories. It says, uh, sorry, just a minute, let me get you up. It's ten categories. Uh, let me read that to you again. Today you are standing, all of you before Adonai, your God, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, along with your little ones, your wives, and your foreigners here with you in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. What's the purpose of all this? The purpose is that you should enter into the covenant of Adonai your God and into his oath, which Adonai your God is making with you today, so that he can establish you today for himself as a people. And so that for you, he will be God, as he said to you, and as he swore to your ancestors, to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs reminds us how 
a few chapters earlier, as part of this same event, God and Israel entered into something of a marriage covenant with each other. He said, you have affirmed, Ha'amarta, this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and that you will observe his laws and commandments and rules and that you will obey him. And the Lord has affirmed, Ha'amircha, related to the same verb, this day that you are, as he promised you, his treasured people who shall observe all his commandments. This is something of an exchange of vows. And as a result, this is who the Jewish people are. The Jewish people are a people of covenant and oath, established by God himself to be his people, with himself as our God. And this relationship requires of us obedience to the way of life he prescribed to our ancestors. But you might say that all of this is nice, but isn't it after all just a once upon a time kind of thing? It may have been true for our ancestors and we honor all of that, but then again, so what? This brings us to our second point. It is crucial to come to terms with how we ourselves are implemented in this covenant. Let me sit down for a minute. And uh, uh, this with God establishment, the text goes on to say, but I'm not making this covenant and this oath only with you. Rather, I'm making it both with him who is standing here with us today before Adonai our God, and also with him who is not with us today. The Torah went to great trouble to list all the people who were there that day, entering into this covenant and oath, specifying nine or 10 different levels of society. We saw it before, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, along with your little ones, your wives, and your foreigners here with you in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, 10 categories. After all of that specificity, the Torah refers to, quote, him who was not here with us today. All of the commentators agree on who this is. It is every succeeding generation of the Jewish people. And that includes us. We're right in the middle of that text. Uh, Let's look at a couple of people. Ibn Ezra, Abraham Ibn Ezra, uh, Avraham Ibn Maya Ibn Ezra. He flourished in Spain in the 11th century and 12th century. He said, not with you alone, but rather with you and with those who shall come after you, your children and your children's children. Ovadia ben Yaakov ben, uh, uh, Sforno, one of my favorite commentators, he flourished in Italy from 1475 to 1550. He said, those who are not here this day is a reference to future as yet unborn generations. You will therefore have to explain to these unborn generations in due course that you yourselves only received the land on the understanding 
that subsequent generations of Jews would remain loyal to the terms of your acceptance. They will continue to inherit the land from you only on that basis. So not only Jewish commentators, by the way, but Christian commentators all agree that what is referred to here by him who is not standing here today is future generations. One more reference, the Talmud. The Talmud in Shabbat 146a, paragraph one, says Rabbi Acha, the son of Rava, said to Rav Ashi, what about converts? Ravashi said to him, even though they themselves were not at Sinai, their guardian angels were present. As it is written, it is not with you alone that I make this covenant and this oath, but with he that stands here with us today before Adonai our God, and with he that is not here with us today. And this includes converts. Now you may agree with that text or not, but the point is, is that all commentators agree because there's no way around it. This text refers to future generations. Therefore, it is crucial to come to terms with how we ourselves are implicated in this covenant, this oath, this modality of living with God that is enjoined upon us as a people. As Hashem told Isaiah, I have made Israel for myself and they will someday honor me before the world, the world, the whole world. Or as another translation says, this is a people I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. We were created to honor God in this way. We are called to stand for the things that God stands for. And we are called to stand before him as his servants. In order to do this, there is one thing that we must avoid above all others. And that one thing is this. As people of God, we should, above all else, detest and avoid idolatry. Our Torah passage goes on to say this. When the next generation, your children will grow up after you, and the foreigner who arrives from a distant land, see the plagues of that land and the diseases which Adonai has made you sick, and that the whole land has become burning sulfur, and salt, that it uh, isn't being sown or becoming, uh, or being sown or bearing crops, or even producing grass, like the overthrow of Sodom, Amorah, Adma, and Tzavoyim, which Adonai overthrew in his wrath, his furious anger. Then all the nations will ask, why is this? And he'll say, because uh, they did not follow the Lord their God. So, why should we avoid idolatry? I'll give you three reasons. First of all, it involves relying on gods who cannot help us. Idolatry is the ultimate futility. Uh, Hebrew makes a pun. Uh, the word for God is Elohim. But oftentimes idols are called elilim, which means empty things. Idols are useless. Now, this is not only idols of wood and stone, 
This is also other things that we make central in our lives that are the bottom line for us. It might be our job. It might be our wife. It might be our husband. It might be our, our children. Uh, it might be our synagogue. It might be our work. Whatever it is that occupies the God space in your life, the source of absolute decision-making, that is your idol. And you're relying on gods that cannot save you. These gods bring with them a corrupted way of looking at life. That's the problem with idols also. Idols bring a whole worldview, a whole way of looking at your life. And apart from a life that is sent in a living God, to some extent or another, that way of looking at life is a lie. Finally, idolatry robs the true and living God of glory and robs us of relationship with him. Remember, we're the people that God formed for himself that we might show forth his praise. And if we're spending our lives revolving around other values, other priorities, then uh, we're robbing him of glory and we're robbing ourselves of relationship with himself. So I want to look at with you, if I can, at a letter that pertains to this. I, uh, I do a publication called uh, Shulchan Shalano, which means our table. And uh, there's a column in Shulchan Shalano every week called Dear Rabbi. And I'm going to see if I can find it. I think it disappeared from my page. Hold on one second. I'll see if I can find it for you. Because I deal, I dealt in this week's Dear Rabbi with uh, this issue. So holdeth oneth for a moment. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not going to waste your time looking for it. Let me abbreviate what it deals with. The question is, why should we be obligated to an agreement which our ancestors made with God? That's a fair question. One of the answers to that is that we're already involved with our ancestors and their relationship with God. It's because my ancestors were delivered from Egypt and your ancestors were delivered from Egypt that at the very best, uh, you're living here and not in Egypt as a second-class population. At the very worst, we would have been wiped out. As a matter of fact, that's what Pharaoh was up to. So, one of the reasons we're bound to this covenant and oath is that it was made with God for benefit on the, on the basis of benefits of which we ourselves are continually beneficiaries. We're continually beneficiaries of the benefits of what God did for us. Therefore, we're continually responsible. Uh, for the reciprocity that that benefit brings. Otherwise, 
we're really thieves, ungrateful, and we're earning God's wrath. Uh, I'll leave you with that reason, but I will say in conclusion, it's up to me, it's up to you. Know before whom you stand. Who is it before whom you stand as a servant? Who is it before whom you stand as a subject before a king? When you know that, and when you keep that in mind, it will cause your life to manifest the values that please God. May it be so in your life. May it be so in my life. May it be so for the pleasure of God and for the fulfillment in our lives of the purpose for which we were created. Shabbat Shalom. Okay.